I'll always remember one of my first Resurrection Sundays as a believer. I had just arrived at church when one of the, the elderly ladies that was serving as a greeter that day came up to me in, in a loud but very cheerful voice said, He is risen. And because I didn't grow up in the church and I was uh, unfamiliar with many practices and traditions surrounding the celebration of the resurrection, I just kind of said, yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't realize that on, on Resurrection Sunday uh, that that phrase is stated with an expectation of a certain response in turn. Uh, and in the ancient church, Christians would greet one another with a simple phrase. They would say, Christ is risen. And then in response, the second person would say, he is risen indeed. And they used that simple phrase, that simple truth to greet one another. Because in that little phrase, Christ is risen, is the very foundation of our faith. And they were saying, this is what is most important. This is what I have built my life upon. This is the, the fundamental truth that I now live for. Indeed, our entire faith rests upon the truth of the resurrection. First Corinthians says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. But then Paul goes on to say, but indeed Christ did rise again. Amen? Amen. And we serve and worship a risen Savior. And that resurrection from the dead has transformed human history. And more importantly, it has transformed our lives. See, we gather today to, to worship our risen Savior because we have experienced that resurrection ourselves. We share in His resurrection. We have been raised with Him, even as we have died with Him when He died for our sins on the cross. We have experienced the power of His resurrection in our lives. And because we have placed our faith and trust in Him and Him alone, we have experienced that transformation. We are no longer who we used to be by the grace of God. No longer relying upon ourselves, we rely completely upon Him. And that is why... We should greet one another with that phrase, that, that Christ should be everything to us. And when we see one another, especially on this Sunday morning, now every single Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. So we could say this to one another every single Sunday, but today especially we can greet one another. When someone says Christ is risen, we can respond with amen. Amen. That is encouraging to my soul. And it is a joy to, to have the privilege of coming this morning to, to share from the Word of God, to proclaim its truths to you. And we gather this morning to worship Jesus first and foremost for who He is, the Son of God. And secondly, we worship Him. We praise and thank Him for what He has done on our behalf. And we looked at that on Friday night uh, at our Good Friday service. We looked at what was accomplished at the cross and now we see this morning, we will resume our, our study in John. And when I looked at the, the preaching schedule and saw that on Easter Sunday I might be able to preach on John 3.16, well, I just, I just couldn't pass that up. All right, John 3.16 is, is the most well-known and beloved Bible verse in all of human culture, in all of human history. It spans across time. And what we see in that tiny verse is an amazing, amazing truth about the greatest gift that was ever given. Jesus is the greatest gift we will ever receive. And I'm here this morning to convince you of that in case you were on the fence post. But in our study, 
what I want to see this morning, and what we've seen in, in weeks gone by, is that this whole chapter has been a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And, and they've spoken about the new birth, and, and Jesus has confronted Nicodemus and said, You must be born again. All of your human efforts, all of your uh, achievements in Judaism, they are worthless. And you must be born again from above. God must give you spiritual life if you are going to enter into his kingdom. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And then at the the tail end of that conversation, excuse me, what we see is that Jesus points Nicodemus to the cross. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And, And Jesus says, well, the son of man must be lifted up, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Jesus points to the cross as what will make the new birth possible. And now, as we come to John 3.16, what we see is an explanation of the verses that preceded it. Excuse me one second. (coughs) Battling a little bit of a head cold. One of my seminary profs once said that uh, there's certain Sundays you don't call in sick, you crawl in sick. And uh, this is one of those Sundays. But all right, look with me. Uh, John chapter three, <clears throat> beginning of verse 14, as we see what John is going to be explaining to us in verse 16 begins there. Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What we have in this verse, the reason it is so beloved by so many is because it is such a, a distinct and unique summary, really, of the entire Bible, of the entire gospel message using the language of giving, the gift God gave to the world in love is the greatest gift of all time, His Son, Jesus Christ. And you might have heard that, that phrase before, usually around Christmas time, that Jesus is the greatest gift. And I hope and pray that that phrase hasn't become too familiar to you, <clears throat> such that you, you've lost the, the meaning and the glory and the majesty uh, of it. But we cannot take it for granted that, thank you, that Christ's death on the cross, the giving by the Father of the Son, is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And what I want to look at this morning in this verse are are four qualities of God's gift to His Son that make Jesus the greatest gift that was ever given or could possibly ever be given. And the first quality that makes this gift great is that the gift was given to the world in love we see that at the beginning of the verse it says for god so loved the world and the esv has a little footnote there's another way of translating this of it begins with a phrase that just could point to the fact that uh, of the manner in which god gave his son in this way god gave his son or it could mean to the extent uh, of god's love but either way There is a connection being made between God's love and God's giving. And what we see is that God so loved the world that his love 
is going to be demonstrated in the giving of His Son. Love is the motive and what is demonstrated as God the Father gives His Son to the world. And what we need to understand is this, this truth is mentioned here, but it's echoed throughout the entire New Testament. Now, I love Romans 5, 8, which you might be familiar with, that God demonstrates or shows His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And additionally, in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The gift was given in love and it was given to the world. And this would have been, would have been a new idea to the Jewish people of this time. So the Jews were convinced that God loved them and that He hated the Gentiles. <laughs> That's what they liked to think. And now here comes this verse, which we have says, God loves the world. God loves the Gentiles, the nations, in addition to loving the Jews. One pastor says, it is a distinctively Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any national group or spiritual elite It is a love that proceeds from the fact that He is love. It is His nature to love, and He loves people because He is the kind of God that He is. God is a loving God, and therefore He loved the world. And and the greatness of God's love should be admired here, as it is demonstrated. Not that, that God's love is towards a world that is so big, but that His love is directed towards a world that is so bad. That's what we see in John's gospel. There has been a running theme that when John speaks of the world, oftentimes he is referring to sinful humanity. If you turn back uh, to the, the prologue in John's gospel, John chapter 1, and you look with me at verses 9 and 10, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And there's several different ways that that term, the world, is being used there. In one sense, it's speaking of the physical earth uh, with the people on it. In another sense, it's speaking of sinful humanity. The one who made the world, so he was in the world, the earth, uh, and the world was made through him. Again, referring to the earth, yet the world, sinful humanity did not know Him. And when we take that understanding of the world and we begin to see that God's love was directed towards people who were in rebellion against Him, who wanted nothing to do with Him, who were rejecting Him as their Creator, as their Lord, yet God's love was directed to them in a way that He would send and sacrifice His Son on their behalf brings a whole new depth and layer to God's love because it's not God loving those who love Him, but it's God loving those who hate Him. And that is what we see. We should be awed and amazed at the love of God mentioned and spoken of here. And additionally, the love of God is intended to be a comfort to 
us to God's people. It's intended to bring hope and peace in times of suffering and knowing that, that God loved us at our worst. Earlier this morning, we sang the hymn entitled The Love of God. There's a great story behind that. It was written by uh, Frederick M. Lehman, uh, who was a California businessman who lost everything and ended up having to go and, and search for work uh, packing uh, oranges and lemons at a plant in Pasadena, California. And one Sunday, he was so deeply moved by the evening sermon on the love of God that he went to work the next day. And all that he could think about was the love of God. And as he's meditating on that theme throughout the day, a, a song begins to form in his mind and he, he writes it down and he was quickly able to write the first two stanzas of the hymn, and, but he really struggled to, to come up with a third stanza. And then back in that day, you had to have a third stanza to the hymn. You couldn't just repeat it over and over again. And uh, as Mr. Lehman, he, he returned uh, home that day and he he read the words uh, again and again and tried to just think through a third stanza and eventually he remembered a poem that someone had given him some time before and hunting around he found the poem and printed on a card which he had used as a as a bookmark and and he read the words and he immediately knew that that was going to be his third verse of his hymn and he noticed some writing on the bottom of the card that he'd been using for a bookmark that had the lyrics and he said regarding that third verse of the love of God. It says, These words were found written on a wall inside of a cell in an insane asylum some 200 years ago. And it is not known why the prisoner was incarcerated. Neither is it known in the words if the, uh, if the words were original uh, or if he had heard them somewhere and had decided to put them in a place where he could be reminded of the greatness of God's love. Whatever the circumstances, he wrote them on the wall of his prison cell. And in due time he died, and the men who had the job of repainting his cell were impressed by the words. Before their paintbrushes had obliterated them, one of the men jotted them down, and thus they were preserved. And so Laman took those words, uh, and they fit perfectly in the, the melody that he had already composed to fit with the first two verses of the, of the hymn. And uh, those are the, what we sang this morning of... Uh, where, where every ma- uh, man on earth is scribe by trade. Uh, and, and there's such a poetic, poetic uh, depiction of we could never write enough about the love of God. Amen. That is the greatness and the grandness of it. And years later, what became known is that uh, that poem that had been initially found on the, the wall of an asylum was, was traced back even further to a rabbi who had written a poem around the year 1000 A.D., uh, and he had written it, uh, even though he didn't know Christ, he understood the character of God. And, and that rabbi rested and was comforted in the character of God in the same way that whoever that person was in the asylum found comfort and knowledge and knowing that God's love for him held him fast and held him secure. And even now, to us today, as we sing that song, what an encouragement to us all about the love of God. How great it is. But as great as that song is, it still pales in comparison to the demonstration of God's love that we see and read about here in this verse. And that it should bring peace and comfort to our hearts that while God, He loved us when we were at our worst. Amen. He loved us when we were sinners and was willing to send His Son for us to rescue us when we were sinners. And if he was willing to do that, we know that his love will stand beside us till the end.
Additionally, as we see the love of God that was demonstrated on our behalf, we are called to reflect the character of God to the world around us. We are called to be His ambassadors. We are called to emulate that type of love to the world, and we are called to want to love, love one another in that same way. Because by loving our enemies and by loving one another, we will mark ourselves out to be followers of Jesus. And that is the first quality of God's gift that was, was given to the world in love. And the second quality that we see is that it was, uh, that marks God's gift is that it was sent as a sacrifice. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this phrase is connected with the previous one and the way that it's done in the Greek. Uh, there's an emphasis upon this phrase over what has preceded. So the emphasis is not on the love of God. The emphasis in this verse is upon the fact that God gave. That is the central idea. Yes, God loved, but more importantly, God gave. And that is the heart of the gospel. The, the core of the gospel message is not merely that God Loved, but that the gift of God was given to sinful humanity. That is the heart of what we have come to celebrate and what we believe. Not just that God loves, but that God loved enough and demonstrated His love by giving His Son as a sacrifice on our behalf. And Jesus was given by the Father to the world in two senses. Jesus was given in the first sense that He was sent into the world in the Incarnation. We see this at Bethlehem. We celebrate this at Christmas. And we see this in verse 17 of John 3. For God did not send His Son into the world. Speaking of the incarnation, Jesus didn't initially come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. That's the first sense in which God gave His Son. He sent Him. And secondly, Jesus was given by the Father and that He was sacrificed. And this is seen... At the crucifixion, this is seen in his death at Calvary. That God loved and God gave. God sacrificed his son, his only son. Many older Bible translations will say only begotten son. And the ESV kind of narrows it down just to the word only. I think that's a better capturing of what is intended there. What has been used in the past in that verse, in that phrase of only begotten, is the, some Christian cults have taken that and run with it to say, hey, look, Jesus was, was a created being. Uh, Jesus had a beginning. And no, that, that's not the point here. Uh, the point of this language is to point to Jesus being the only and the unique Son of God. And this is, this is intended to, to spark our recollection. This is called to remind us of something from the Old Testament. Just like... If you go back to, to John chapter 1, verse 1, John's done this in the past. When you read John chapter 1, verse 1, what do you immediately think of? It says, in the beginning was the Word. Well, what immediately comes to mind? Genesis 1. Well, those words of His only Son are supposed to, to trigger something in our minds that point us back to something in Genesis 22. If you turn there with me. Genesis 22 tells the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. When God tested Abraham and, and called him to sacrifice his son. Look with me at these verses. Genesis 22 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son. 
your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, I've got to pause there. Because it should be noted that Isaac is not Abraham's only son. He already has a son named Ishmael. But this is the son of promise. This is the son that God said, I'm going to give you a son, send you a son in your old age, and through this son I'm going to build a nation out of you. And now here we have God calling Abraham to go and sacrifice that son. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. And what we see in in the subsequent verses is that Abraham obeyed. He traveled three days with his son Isaac. And they went to the land of Moriah and God showed them a mountain. And they went up that mountain and Abraham knows what's going to take place this whole time. But Isaac is like, hey, hey, dad, where's the animal that we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham says, no, God will provide an animal that we are going to sacrifice. God will provide for us. And as he's testing Abraham's faith, Abraham obeys God up to the point where he is about to strike down his own son. And then an angel of the Lord appears and says, no, wait, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you believe. Now I know that you act in faith. And God provided a substitute for Isaac on that mountain. Now what's key here is to to remember that this is in the the mountain, in the land of Moriah. Well, 2 Chronicles 3.1 says this, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. See, the, the temple in Jerusalem is built on Mount Moriah in the land of Moriah. And what we have, what is more than likely, is that if Abraham and Isaac went to one of those mountains in the land of Moriah... It is very likely, I would say, that God directed Abraham and Isaac that day to a mountain that would later be called Calvary, where God's son would be sent. Except here's, here's the difference in, in, these, in these events, where with Isaac, Isaac was rescued out of that. There was a substitute made for Isaac, but there was no substitute made for Jesus. Jesus was the substitute. Jesus was the lamb that would be slain for us, for the world. God did not spare his own son, but sacrificed him on one of those mountains in the land of Moriah. And that is what we are are called to see here and reflect upon. The greatness of God's gift is seen in that he, the gift of Jesus was sent as a sacrifice. And this giving of the Son is what is most profound. Yes, God is love and love is good. But God is, or love is not God, and love is not the entirety of the gospel. God loving the world and giving His Son to die for sinners, that is the gospel. That is the good news. And God gave that which was most precious to Him to a world that hated Him. And you who are parents know and understand this. What would it take for you to give up one of your children? Or better yet, if you have an only child, what would it take for you to give up an only child 
whom you love, you would give them up as a sacrifice for people that, that hate you. You would never do that. You'd never have any desire to do that. And yet that is exactly what God has done. He sent his son as a sacrifice. As he gave what was most costly and what was most valued by him. I love Romans 8.32, which highlights this, this fact that since God has already given us his son, there's nothing left for God to withhold from us. Right? Sometimes you can, you can give something and say, well, there's a little bit more. I'm going to hold that back for myself or hold it for later. Um, but Paul's point there in Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That we now have every blessing in the heavenly places because God has already given us Christ. There's nothing more valuable for us to receive from God. And because God has already given us his son, we know that everything else will come afterwards. He's not going to be stingy after giving up his son. But Jesus was, was sent as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin, to bear the wrath of God on the cross that we should have borne. That is what is spoken of and meant here when it says God gave His Son. And these first two qualities that we've seen, they, they, they would already be enough to acknowledge that, that Christ is the greatest gift. That He was given to the world in love and that He was given as a sacrifice for sinners. Yet there are still, still more to come in this verse and, and more qualities that qualify the giving of the Son as the greatest gift. And this third quality that I would point you to would be the fact that the gift was given to save us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And God gave His Son so people could be saved. God gave His Son so we would not have to perish. See, what we see in this verse is that there are only two destinies for all of humanity. There's a default destiny that everybody is on pace for. Everyone's on a track towards perishing, towards destruction. And when it speaks of perishing here, it's not speaking of annihilation. What it is speaking about is being utterly ruined. And ruin comes from being separated from that holy and loving God for eternity. That is the default track that we are all on. But then the other, the other option, the other destiny is made possible because of God's gift of His Son. Eternal life is made possible because of the perfect life that Jesus lived, because of the sacrificial death that He died, and because of the resurrection from the dead that we now celebrate today and every single Sunday as we gather together. That is the greatness of what God's gift accomplished. It was given to save us. God the Father gave God the Son so that for the purpose of people having eternal life through Him, Christ was given in our place. He was our substitute. And that should elicit a response from us. That should call us to worship God, to appreciate the gift that He has given when we see and understand that without that substitute, we would be lost. We would be destined to perish. 
Christ is our substitute. It's a story of shortly after the American Civil War, there was a man in, in farmer's clothing who was seen kneeling at a, at a gravestone of a, a soldier down in Nashville, Tennessee area. And an observer came up and asked, is that the grave of your son? And the farmer replied, no, I have seven children, all of them young and a wife on my farm in Illinois. But I was drafted, and despite the great hardship it was caused, I was required to join the army. But on the morning that I was to depart, this man, my neighbor's oldest son, came over and offered to take my place in the war. And that oldest son went and died in place of his neighbor. The observer solemnly asked, well, what is it that you are writing on his grave? And the, the farmer replied, and he said, I'm writing... He died for me. And that is what we must begin to see and understand about this verse. It's not just that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, and whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That God sent His Son to die for you. We need to make and understand that this is personal. Christ died to save sinners. Christ died to save people. And not just a nameless and faceless people, but he died for you and he died for me. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter three eighteen echoes that truth. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's what we must see and understand. That this gift is, is personal. It was given to save us. That Christ died for me. That is the mindset that we must have. He died so that we would not perish, but that we might have eternal life that we might reconcile to the god that we had rebelled against that is what god sent his son to die for this is a sacrificial gift and oftentimes guys can kind of tune out when i speak about the love of god right it says love that's just mushy stuff well, what value has has that for me but but i would say this is the, the manliest of loves this is sacrificial love. This is somebody laying down his life for the good and the benefit of others. This is the type of love that we commend and we just naturally see the beauty of when, it, when a soldier sacrifices himself for his comrades. That, that is the love that is spoken of here. Yes, it is love as an emotion, but it is love that is demonstrated by action, by sacrifice. This is the manliest of loves and the greatest of loves. But as I went through that, you might have noticed that, that I passed over a few words that were, were quite important. Maybe the most important words in the verse. That brings us to this, this fourth quality that makes this the greatest gift ever given. That the gift is conditional upon belief those little words whoever believes in 
him. Within that last statement, whoever believes in him, we see the condition. We see the qualification for eternal life, which makes it extremely important. The condition of our salvation is belief. We spoke about this last week. What what faith really means of knowing the truth, of being convinced of it in your heart, in your soul, and then acting upon it in trust. Those three components. That's what saving faith consists of. But here we see, and not just any belief is that we are what we are called to. Oftentimes what I like to, to say in this world, we're called just to kind of to believe in the Disney theology of if you just believe, it will happen. Disney kind of proposes a belief just in belief. Uh, that If you just have faith, things will happen magically. But that is not what we are called to here. That is not what we are ever called to in Scripture. Scripture always calls us to believe, to trust, to entrust ourselves to a person. A trustworthy person. God Himself, or the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is always to be the object of our faith. And that is the gospel message, that a holy God gave His Son in love to die for sinners. And that is what we are called to proclaim to an entire world. That message is for the entire world. But, here's the qualification. Only those who respond in faith, only those who look to Jesus and His work on the cross will have eternal life. Whoever responds in faith, regardless of age, ethnicity, social class, gender, or how many sins they have committed, everyone who looks to Jesus in faith will have eternal life. That's what we see here. That's, that's God giving His Son to the world, sending His Son to the world. God loving the world. There's no qualifications there or limitations. Merely the one condition of whoever believes. And this condition, as I said, is maybe the most important part of the verse because, again, it sets forward that that all-important qualification for receiving the gift and its benefits. Now, I know we all love to read those really long documents that are usually called terms and conditions, right? We all love to read those in detail. And, And look at all that we have to do, all that is binding upon us. But usually the most important little details are in that fine print. Because that's what tells us what the company or the, the service provider expects of us and what they can do to say, nope, all done. You're finished. You're cut off. Shows us the qualifications that we must abide by if we are to re- receive the benefits of their products and services. And what's interesting, nobody really complains about the fact that companies do that, that they have the right to do that. Nobody objects to that. But some of you might be objecting to the condition that I just mentioned here in this verse. Some of you might be asking, well, if God is God, why does He have to make salvation conditional? If God so loved the world, why didn't He just save the whole world? He could have done that. Why why does He narrow it down and make a condition attached to it. And I would say in answering that first and foremost, that God has the right to establish that condition because 
He's God. He's the one establishing the terms of the agreement here. He gets to decide. He is the one offering the gift and its accompanying benefits. He's the one who offers it to us. And then secondly, I would appeal to your own experience. Have you ever loved somebody? Have you ever cared for them and demonstrated care and concern for them and have them reject it? How did that feel? Right? It's not enjoyable. It's quite hurtful, in fact. When you demonstrate love for somebody and they just turn away from it and they don't want any part of it. It's hurtful because love always wants to be received. Always wants to be received. And in establishing faith as the condition for salvation, God isn't giving us some extreme qualification. It's really quite simple. He's the one who's given the gift. And he's the one who has sacrificed that which was most dear to him. And he is the one who then calls for us in return to embrace what he's done. Just look to Jesus in faith. Look to the son, the son whom I love and give in your place and love him as well. That's all that, that God is asking of us. To embrace the gift that he has given to us. And as we've been, been studying in, in John 3, how does all this fit together? Again, Jesus has told Nicodemus, you can't save yourself. It's impossible. You are completely unable. But you need to look to Jesus. And, and notice here, of, in this chapter, we're not commanded to to birth ourselves again. That's something that the Lord does in us. We don't give ourselves a new birth. But what is commanded and emphasized here is that we are called to do what is within our control. Our realm of responsibility is to look to Jesus in faith. To look to Jesus in appreciation and love for what he has done on our behalf. That is what we are commanded to do. That is what John 3.16 emphasizes. It calls us for a, to make a personal decision. A decision, a question that we have to ask all, each and every one of us in the stillness of our hearts right now is, do I love Jesus? Do I believe in Him? Is He now my hope? Do I rely completely upon Him rather than upon myself? Do I appreciate this gift that God has given to me? The Son whom He loved, sacrificed on my behalf to pay for my sins, to rescue me from perishing. Do I understand all of that? Do I embrace it? And in response, have I turned to God in love as well? That is what we all must answer. And we all must be honest with ourselves about that. And I would urge every single person here to think about, to meditate upon the love of God that has been demonstrated in His greatest gift, the gift of His Son, 
And we are called to respond in faith and thanksgiving because this gift was given to the world in love, because it was given as a sacrifice, because it was given to save us, because it is conditional upon faith. I love the the summary that one pastor gives of this verse. He says, God the Father loved all human beings to such an extent that He actually sent His one and only Son into the world and then gave Him over to death so that everyone without distinction or exception who places trust in Jesus may now and in the hereafter experience eternal life and so not suffer God's wrath and thus be lost. And, and I, I pray that, that you wouldn't allow this sermon, this, this text, just to become something that becomes so mundane. Again, this is, this is the Bible verse that I probably didn't even have to read this morning. You, you all are so familiar with it. If you go up to, to unbelievers in your neighborhood, I bet you they could quote this verse. That's how familiar this verse is in our culture but don't allow familiarity with it to breed contempt okay don't let it lose its majesty but i I would i would close with these final thoughts from uh, a puritan named john flavel who as he was reflecting upon this most famous of verses he made three three reflections that i think are worth repeating and and remembering as we go from here to think about the love of God as demonstrated in the giving of His Son. The first reflection, he says, that the exceeding preciousness of souls, and at at what a high rate God values them, that He will give His Son and His only Son out of His bosom as a ransom for them. We see that the value that God places upon our salvation by how valuable it was, how much He was willing to pay to save us. The second reflection he makes is that since God has given us his son, we can be confident of receiving every other help and mercy we need to endure this life and arrive safely in heaven. This confidence should give us peace in every storm and trust in the face of life's trials. If God gave us his son, he's not going to withhold sustaining grace from us. He's not going to hold back anything else that would get us through this life if He's already sacrificed His Son. And the third reflection is that if the greatest love has been manifested in giving Christ to the world, then it follows that the greatest evil and wickedness is manifested in despising, slighting, and rejecting Christ. I would say this, that if Jesus is the greatest gift that humanity could ever receive, then Jesus is also the greatest gift that humanity could ever reject. And that means that there is no greater offense to a loving and holy God than to reject His act of love, sending His Son. Think about that. Rejecting Christ is the greatest sin we could ever possibly commit. That's a sobering thought. And may that thought move our hearts to worship and give thanks to God for the precious gift of His Son. And may it move our hearts to go forward and to share with others the love of God. 
we are convinced that this is the greatest gift that humanity has ever received or could receive, and this is also the greatest offense to God to reject that gift, then we need to go and proclaim that. We need to do it in love, in grace. We can't be ambassadors of love and speak with hatred and animosity. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. That is our desire. And may we go forth imploring people to be reconciled to God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Loving Father, God, Your love amazes us. It humbles us. May we contemplate the depth and the riches of your love that you have given to us in Christ. May your love for us warm our hearts in the coldest and darkest of moments. May your steadfast love comfort us in knowing that if you sent your son to die for us, you will not allow us to be lost afterwards. You will not let Christ's sacrifice be in vain. And may your love transform our hearts and our minds. May it guide our hands. May it lead us to love others and to love them enough to share the gospel with them. Lord, you do not desire that any should perish. You desire that all would come to know you. That all would turn to you in faith and repentance. And may you use us as a church as individuals, to carry forth the message of your love, the message that you gave your Son for sinful humanity as a sacrifice to pay for the sins that would have led to our perishing. Lord, may that message be on our lips. May it be on our minds. May we be faithful ambassadors who proclaim your love as it has been demonstrated to us and experienced by us through the giving of your Son, And through his resurrection. Lord Jesus, we praise you, we worship you, we honor you. As the one who gave his life for us, as the one who conquered sin, as the one who conquered the grave, who conquered death, and now you are risen and ascended. Lord, we worship you for who you are and all that you have done on our behalf. And may our our worship continue in our hearts, in our minds from this point forth. Amen.